turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, Paul's epistle to the Galatians, the God-breathed words written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. And we'll start reading in verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This weekend is Memorial Day weekend, and we remember those servicemen in the military, past and present, who have given their lives to protect the rights and freedoms of Americans. And we're mindful of this, and we are thankful for all our armed service men and women, for the military, for those men who have volunteered and are giving their lives and their service for the sake of the liberties and freedoms of this country. And I know many of you have friends or family members who are tied or connected with the military, and we want to be in prayer for those who are presently and actively serving, especially those who are connected with our church. This is particularly a time where we need to be in prayer for them, for the gospel work in their hearts and the ministry and the testimonies that they have. You know I'm sensitive to this a little bit because my father served in the, my grandfather, excuse me, served in the Canadian military and fought in both the First and Second World Wars. And I have a great uncle who died and is buried in Flanders Field. So we are appreciative of the men who have given their lives, especially believers. But I want to take this one step further this morning. Though the military do indeed fight for our our rights and our freedoms, which we hold dear, including the rights to meet and the right to worship and freedom of speech, 
there are believers through the ages and through the church history and even to this day who have given their lives or giving their lives not for rights or freedoms but for the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And even as we speak, there are believers and missionaries in countries around the world who are either incarcerated or under persecution. And we certainly think of China and friends that we have who are missionaries there who are under scrutiny, persecution, where it's not about rights, it's about the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And it ties into what Peter led us in this morning in the song we sang, I Surrender All. That for the sake of Christ, are we willing to surrender everything, including our lives, our comfort, our well-being, and our rights and our freedoms? Because this, brothers and sisters, is what points us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who gave up all rights and freedoms to die on a cross for your sin and mine, so that we might have the gift of the Spirit, and we might walk in a freedom, a freedom of righteousness, and a freedom that comes from the love of God. So, join me, if you will, as we come to the Lord in prayer to pray for those who sacrifice their rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel and to give thanks to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you gave up everything to fight a battle on our behalf. A battle in which you surrendered your life on the cross for sins that you did not commit Lord Jesus, for our behalf, you were willing to endure rejection, humiliation, suffering, and the loss of your life. But you did so out of love for the Father, in fulfillment of every word of Scripture, and out of love for sinners like us. And so we are so thankful this morning to be able to come, not according to the flesh, but in the Spirit, and to celebrate the gift of the Spirit that you, that you have given that has been purchased by your blood on the cross. We rejoice in this opportunity. We thank you for it. We lift up to you, Lord Jesus, this morning and for this weekend, Lord, those members of the military service, especially those who are believers at this time, who are spread around throughout the world. We pray that they would be encouraged. We pray that they would be fed with your word. We pray that you would protect their testimony and their ministry. We pray that many in the military and many around the world would come to know you through their gospel witness. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, as a church, to be mindful about how we can be an encouragement to those who are believers and your missionaries in the military service in America. Lord Jesus, we want to also pray in particular, Lord, for your missionaries around the world. Missionaries in India, in China, in the Middle East, Lord, throughout the world, many who are suffering at this time, many who are in situations where they are incarcerated for the sake of the word, many whose families, Lord, are suffering because of their witness for the gospel, holding fast to the true confession of the faith. We pray, Lord, for them, that the gospel will continue to go boldly out, that you would give them strength and courage, that you would, Lord Jesus, continually be their source of joy and strength in the midst of a world that is hostile to the kingdom of God. And we pray as a church, Lord, would you enable us to be part of that community that is willing to surrender all, Lord Jesus, 
out of love for you and out of love for sinners who so desperately need you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that privilege this morning. And as we come to your word this morning, we just pray that you would prepare our hearts, Lord. Prepare our hearts too, by way of the Spirit, to surrender all. Would you enable us, Lord Jesus, to come under your word and not stand over it? Would you soften our hearts? Would you open our eyes? Lord Jesus, would you help us to use the faith that you have already given us to behold your goodness, your glory, your love, and your good news in your word? May we walk away after we hear the exposition of the word, convicted, encouraged, edified, and equipped for the work of ministry so that we may grow into a mature body that is one in holiness and unity in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we have a rich blessing. Dr. and Pastor Amos Yang is going to come and bring the word to us this morning. He needs no introduction. He is a friend. He is a brother. He is an encouragement. And the Lord has used him in his providence to care and encourage and strengthen us at Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose. And so it's with great joy that I welcome Pastor Amos to the Lord's pulpit. Good morning, Lighthouse Bible Church. I'm honored to be here. I'm very privileged to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. A woman named Lynn in Colorado writes this. I don't know exactly when my affair started. My marriage of eight years had brought me three wonderful children and a beautiful home. While I'd like to say that it brought me happiness too, I couldn't say that. I questioned the direction of my career. I felt guilty leaving my children with a babysitter. And I believed my husband, Alan, wasn't doing everything he could to make me happy. I focused on what Alan did that I didn't like. Petty things such as making noises when he ate, telling annoying jokes, or not putting something away became the stepping stones to what I thought were bigger problems. I thought, he never listens to me. He doesn't support anything I do. He rarely hugs me. By focusing on what he wasn't doing, I overlooked the things he did do. Things like working hard to support us, helping around the house, and encouraging me to take a break from my job, reading stories to the kids each night. He loved me even when I wasn't loving towards him. Still, I grew impatient and emotionally distant. I blamed my unhappiness on Alan. Soon, he put more energy into his work. When he came home after a long day, I complained about the long hours he worked. Eventually, I avoided talking to him at all unless I really had to. He then started working Saturdays, which added fuel to the fire. I turned to Paul, a co-worker. He was easy to talk to, and I enjoyed his company. Thinking I had found someone who truly understood me, we spent more time together. One evening after work, a group of us went out for drinks. Paul and I were the last to leave, and as he walked me to my car, he kissed me. While I was surprised at first, 
I convinced myself there was nothing wrong with it because I didn't love Alan anymore. Paul and I met often, and I told him about my marital problem. The more I shared how awful my marriage was, the more my heart opened to Paul. I thought he possessed all the qualities my husband Alan lacked. I thought he was the one I was meant to be with. I thought I was in love. Our relationship grew physically and emotionally, and eventually we also became sexually intimate. At first, our relationship didn't bother me. I justified it by blaming Alan. After a few months, though, guilt filtered in. The more I pushed it away, the more it consumed me. In the middle of the night, after Alan tossed and turned in bed, he touched my arm and asked, Is there someone else? I ignored him. He asked again. I told him there was someone. Do you know anyone who's ever had an affair? Can you imagine being involved in one yourself? If you know anything about marital affairs, like the one Lynn describes, you know that her story is actually somewhat typical. Leading up to the actual affair, there were multiple warning signs that came up along the way. First, Lynn was discontent in life in general. That became discontentment with her husband, specifically. She began blaming him for her unhappiness, and that led to her alienating him. Soon, she found another source and target for affection. She talked to that man about things she shouldn't have talked to him about, and soon she was guilty of infidelity, both physical and emotional. Why did all of this happen? The answer you get depends upon who you ask. Many would say that Lynn was predisposed to having an affair due to various environmental pressures and situational realities. Maybe her husband wasn't meeting her emotional needs. Perhaps the two of them simply were never compatible to even begin with. Maybe society at large has created a system that's hostile to a woman's sanity, making it impossible for her to remain faithful to her husband. Many feminists would say that women were never meant to be loyal to and married to a man and to be trapped raising children, and that that situation is what inevitably led to all of this trouble. Others would propose that Lynn's education and career are to blame. If only she weren't so educated and working outside the home earning her own income and spending so much time around men who aren't her husband, then this wouldn't have happened. And yet, perhaps some others would say, clearly, somehow, President Trump is guilty of all of this. Somehow he did something to cause all of this to happen. So, why did Lynn's affair happen? The Bible has an answer to that question, and among many other lessons, you're going to see the answer today. As Pastor Mark read for us, our text is in Galatians 5. Today we're focusing on verses 19 through 21. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. And in this text, you're going to see four sins of the flesh. Four sins of the flesh. You want to be vigilant against these sins of the flesh so that you can avoid the guilt and devastation 
that these sins inflict, and also so that you can experience and enjoy relational and spiritual success. Turn with me there to Galatians 5. As I said, we're focusing on verses 19 through 21. But as you just saw when Pastor Mark read this passage, in verses 16 through 18, the immediate prior context, you see that among many other lessons, there are really just two ways, broadly speaking, that you can live. Either you live according to the Spirit, or you live according to the flesh. And these two ways that you can live are diametrically opposed to one another. Verse 17 says, The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. Living according to the Spirit means submitting to Him, and reflecting His ministry and influence in your daily life. That would be the right choice. In contrast, living according to your flesh means submitting to your sinful nature, and that, of course, would be the wrong choice. This confronts you with the question, how do you live? How are you living today? Do you live according to the Spirit, or do you live according to the flesh? In this passage, that word flesh refers to your sinful nature. In other passages, that word flesh refers to human beings in general, and in yet other passages, it refers to your physical body. Here, though, it refers to your sinful nature. Everything bad in you that you're fighting against in your sanctification, everything in you that causes you to think, act, and speak in ways that fall short of the glory of God, that is your flesh. And so there are two ways that you can live, according to the Spirit or according to the flesh. And in the passage that follows ours, you can read about what a life according to the Spirit looks like. That would be the fruit of the Spirit. Today, though, you're going to see specific expressions of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh. Before we dive into those specifics, a few comments are in order regarding why these sins of the flesh matter at all. Why are we studying these deeds of the flesh? There definitely are many reasons, but let me give you just three right now. First, they're here in the Bible. And we want to study, learn, receive, and proclaim anything and everything in the Holy Scriptures. Second, though, these sins matter because heaven and hell actually hang in the balance. Look at what the end of our passage here says in verse 21. There, at the end of that verse, Paul says, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In short, if your life is characterized by these sins, the Bible says that you indicate you've never actually truly received Christ as Savior, and therefore you aren't going to heaven. Please don't misunderstand what we're saying here. Committing one or more of these sins once here and there doesn't necessarily automatically mean that you're going to hell. That's why Paul uses that word practice here. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're talking about an ongoing pattern of life. If your pattern of life is ongoing sin with no interruptions due to repentance, you give good indication that Christ isn't present in your life. 
One commentator explains, these sins are normal and continual behaviors for non-believers in their course of their life in the flesh, but are abnormal and interruptive behavior in the lives of Christians who live in the Spirit. The Bible has a category for unrepentant non-Christians. That's the vast majority of this world. The Bible also has a category for ignorant, spiritually young, and uninstructed Christians. That probably was most of you at one time in your life, and perhaps some of you right now. What the Bible, though, has no category for is a Christian who is aware he's in sin, and yet who knowingly chooses to continue in sin refuses to repent, and doesn't even attempt repentance. That type of so-called Christian is a self-contradiction, and hence in reality is no Christian at all. As the Apostle Paul says here in this verse, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Third, these sins matter because they point to your fundamental problem. Broadly speaking, there are two general views regarding man's nature and basic problem. The humanistic view is that you're inherently good and that your main problem is a bad or suboptimal environment. If it weren't for that bad environment or background, whether past or present, then you would be in good shape. This humanistic view is expressed in thoughts or statements like these. I get mad at work... Because my boss is such a jerk. I yell at my wife because she's so dumb and petty. I'm difficult at times because my mom abused me during my childhood. If you knew my background, if you knew my upbringing, then you'd understand why I'm this way and stop bothering me about it. My family, relatives, and I are all basically good people. That's the humanistic view that is so widespread that it has unfortunately infiltrated even many Christian minds. In contrast, though, the biblical view is completely different and says that you're inherently bad and that your main problem is your sin nature within yourself. This isn't something outside of you. This isn't your environment. This isn't your background. This is something inside of you and inherent to you. At most, your background and environment merely expose what's already inside of you. Many years ago, as I've shared at times in the past, I did my anesthesiology residency training at a county trauma hospital in the Los Angeles area. During that time, I routinely had patients who were gangsters who had been shot up, usually because of a drug deal gone bad. I recall one specific patient who we took care of during my very first few months of residency training. This patient had been shot well over 30 times and seemed to be bleeding from everywhere, both internally and externally. Despite our best efforts, we couldn't save him, and he died. When it was clear that the patient was dead and that therefore there was nothing left for us to try, the senior surgeon on the case put his instruments down took a deep breath of frustration and said, okay, I'll go tell this patient's family. 
As that surgeon exited the operating room area and made his way towards the waiting room where the family was, two security guards saw him in his scrub splattered with blood and quickly asked him, Doctor, where are you going? He said, I'm going to tell the family that that patient died. Immediately, both security guards said to him, we're coming with you. The three of them then went off together to that waiting room. I saw this conversation and I was confused. I turned to a nearby nurse who had been at that hospital for decades and I asked her, why are those security guards going with the surgeon? I can't imagine why their presence would be relevant to the conversation he's about to have with the family. The nurse replied, I can see you're new here. When you tell family members that their loved one has died, they sometimes get crazy, get angry, and treat you as if you're the one who killed their family member. Doctors here often get assaulted by families for this specific reason. I protested, but we tried so hard to save that patient. It's debatable whether he was even alive when he arrived at the operating room and looked at everything that we tried. And the nurse said, I know, I know. But people are crazy and don't seem to understand that. This bewildered me, quite honestly, for quite a long time. But over time, it became clear to me that many people don't know how to differentiate between a messenger and a perpetrator. In a similar way, many of you may have confused your background, environment, or people in your environment as being the perpetrator or cause for your sin, when in reality... At most, those things are merely the messengers that are revealing and exposing your sin. An x-ray never gives you disease. It merely exposes the disease that's already in you. And similarly, you get mad at work, not because your boss is a jerk, but because you're a sinner. You yell at your wife, not because she's dumb and petty, but because of your sin. And you're difficult at times, not because your mom abused you during your childhood, but because of sin inside of you. The problem is not your background or environment. The problem is you and your sin. And you, your family, and relatives are not all basically good people. You're all fundamentally sinners. If you think that your environment is the problem, then you're going to sit around and wait for your environment to change. The problem with that is that, first of all, it may never change, and even if it does, second of all, you'll find that the problem remains because the problem is in your heart, not in your environment. Pastor John MacArthur explains, this is why better housing, transportation, education, jobs, income, medical care, and all other such things, desirable as they may be, can do nothing to solve man's basic problem, which is sin inside of him. No outward benefit can improve him inwardly. Instead, better outward conditions offer better and more sophisticated opportunities to do evil and for those very benefits themselves to be corrupted by the people they are designed to help. The problem isn't your background or environment. The problem is sin inside of you. 
And this is why you have to look to Christ. Christ alone can save you from your sin. Christ alone can fix the real problem inside of you. If you haven't yet claimed Christ as your Savior, you need to do that. Acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need Christ to be your Savior. By faith, receive Him as your Lord and Savior, and He will make you a new creation. God will put a new heart and a new spirit within you. Only then do you have any hope of having that new inward self. Let's now walk through the specific deeds of the flesh that our text brings to your attention. The text says here in verse 19 that the deeds of the flesh are evident. Evident. That word here means apparent and plain to see in the same way that an ear is evident while a liver or spleen is much less evident because you can't readily see them. These sins can be readily seen because sooner or later they manifest themselves externally. True, you might try to deny that they're there or try to hide them, just like how someone might try to deny that he has an ear or hide his ear, the ear attached to his head, but the sins are evident nonetheless. We'll sort these 15 deeds of the flesh into four broad sins. The first category would be sexual sin. Sexual sin. You see Paul identify three specific sexual sins here in verse 19. Immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The word immorality here doesn't refer to the broad concept of ethical immorality per se. Right here, we're not talking about cheating on your taxes, lying to your spouse about what you ate or didn't eat, putting together a fake resume to get a job, and so forth. All of those things are wrong and are addressed in other passages, but here, immorality refers specifically to sexual immorality, which is why the English Standard Version that many of you have translates it exactly like that, sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneo, from which we get the word pornography. What exactly counts as porneo, though? What exactly counts as sexual immorality? There are many ways that we could attempt to capture its definition, but perhaps the simplest way to do so would be to understand that sexual immorality is any sexual expression outside the covenant of biblical marriage. Any sexual expression outside the covenant of biblical marriage. This would include adultery, prostitution, homosexual activity, bestiality, pederasty, today called sexual abuse of a child, Premarital sex and sexual activity, such as what's often referred to as making out, outer course, petting, and so on. And yes, immorality would include masturbation, which is sexual expression outside the covenant of marriage. Impurity here in the list of sins is similar to immorality, but is different in that whereas immorality refers primarily to actions, impurity refers primarily to issues of your heart. It means that you have an unclean heart, especially in the areas of sexuality. One useful saying is an impure heart engages in immoral behavior, and an immoral behavior reflects an impure heart. 
And so if you lust, for example, after someone illegitimate, such as someone other than your spouse if you're married, or anyone at all if you're not married, you're guilty of impurity even if you might not be technically guilty of explicit immorality. More so in the past, Christians would sometimes debate whether looking at pornography constitutes immorality. Some say yes, others say no, yet others say they just aren't sure. This debate is of limited relevance, though, since looking at pornography clearly constitutes at least impurity, and that's condemned here alongside immorality. Ephesians 5 similarly groups both sins together when it says, immorality or any impurity must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And then, of course, Jesus teaches that lusting after someone is to commit adultery with that person in your heart. And adultery, even if only in your heart, would certainly be closely related to immorality. The third deed of the flesh here is sensuality. This is the ongoing pattern of either immorality or impurity in your life. This is where you're so reckless about sexual behavior and desires that you don't even care anymore what God or others think. Your lifestyle and mindset are dominated and governed by impurity or immorality. Before we move on to look at the other categories of sin in this passage, I'd like to make two specific comments related to sexual sin. First, sexual sin is unique. Sexual sin is unique. When I was a young child growing up in the Midwest during the 1980s, homosexuality was sufficiently rare that whenever it was spoken of, it seemed to always be spoken of in a negative and pejorative sense. It was made fun of. Calling someone gay was a playground insult. AIDS was a fairly new and scary disease at that time and was known as the gay disease. During the 1990s and 2000s, though, despite their exceedingly small numbers, the homosexual community and lobby so effectively promoted their agenda that homosexuality went from being a fringe topic of ridicule to being accepted as mainstream, some would even say exalted. Soon, homosexuality became dangerous to criticize. And doing so now can get you death threats, lead to you being fired immediately from your job, or result in your small business being completely destroyed. Along the way, beginning in the late 1990s and early 2000s, I noticed that Christians began recategorizing homosexuality and speaking of it very differently. Before, it was viewed as a serious sin. During this transition, though, Christians began speaking of homosexuality as just one sin among many. Christians began saying things like, well, I struggle with the sin of anger. You struggle with the sin of gossip. And that guy over there struggles with the sin of homosexuality. No big difference to each their own. That might sound nice and all. And there might be small elements of relevant truth in that kind of thinking. But overall, I want you to know that it's a bunch of baloney. Sexual sin is in its own unique category. And this is true whether you're talking about homosexuality, adultery, premarital sex, or other sexual sins. All forms of what the Bible calls immorality. 
1 Corinthians 6 assumes the uniqueness of sexual sin when it says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Most of you instinctively know that sexual sins are unique. Those of you who are married are probably willing to tolerate a spouse who's guilty of the sin of jealousy or anger a few times a year, every year, year after year. But how many of you would be willing to tolerate a spouse who's guilty of adultery a few times a year, year after year, and forever? Those of you who are single understand a similar concept. You might be willing to stay with a significant other who's guilty every now and then of the sins of gossip or selfishness. But I don't think you would tolerate a boyfriend or girlfriend who's sleeping around. Sexual sins are unique sins, even if people try to deny it. Second, be vigilant against sexual sin during this time of sheltering in place. Most of you are spending much more time at home now than ever before. Those of you who used to work outside the home in an office setting are now more than home at home, working from home. And this has created the opportunity to get away, per se, with viewing illicit material such as pornography. Various news outlets have reported that the pornography industry is now booming and thriving more than ever before. That makes sense because the office workplace setting represents helpful accountability that may be non-existent at home. Do whatever you need to do to have sufficient accountability and guards against sexual temptation. For some of you, that will mean leaving the door open or working in an open common area where your spouse or roommates can occasionally peer over your shoulder. Regardless, remember, immorality or any impurity must not even be named among you as is proper for saints. You've seen, you've seen that one sin of the flesh is sexual sin. There's a second sin delineated in this passage, and that might be what you would call religious sin. Religious sin. In verse 20, Paul now lists two more deeds of the flesh, which are idolatry and sorcery. For most people, idolatry is difficult to fully understand because there are at least two different kinds of idolatry. We might call these the physical type and the heart type. Physical idolatry is what occurs when people kneel or bow down before images, objects, and statues. This takes place, for example, in Buddhist temples. It also takes place among Catholics when people bow down to statues of Mary. For many of you, this type of idolatry is easy to identify and believe as idolatry. You might be surprised to hear this, but what makes idolatry idolatrous isn't actually the physical act of kneeling or bowing, per se. For example, I often will kneel down to help my kids put on their shoes, give them a hug, or pick up their many, 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 many toys that seem to perpetually be strewn all over the floor. No one views that kind of kneeling as idolatry. Similarly, you all understand when you think about it, that what makes Buddhist or Catholic idolatry idolatrous isn't so much the act of kneeling or bowing down, 
but more so the significance the person attaches to the object in front of them. That person is giving to the idol affection, loyalty, and worship that people should have only for God. And that's what makes the idolatry idolatrous. Once you understand that, then you're able to realize that idolatry is far more widespread than you may have ever imagined. An idol is anything you love, trust, or fear more than God himself. These words, love, trust, and fear, are worship words after all. An idol can also be described as any source of your identity, worth, or sense of righteousness greater than or other than Christ. Even a good desire becomes idolatrous when it's the ultimate desire of your heart. So, for example, money is a good thing, but the Bible teaches that the love of money is idolatrous. Having a job is a good thing, but finding your primary identity in it and placing your ultimate loyalty in it rather than in Christ is idolatrous. This is the heart type of idolatry. The full scope of idolatry might be very hard to accept because it is so widespread. Much like how a fish knows nothing about water, even though it's surrounded by it all the time. Similarly, it might be hard for you to identify as sin, something that is so ubiquitous. But if you'll simply open your eyes, pay attention, and ask God to help you see the idols in your own life, you'll probably begin to see the myriads of idols that exist, including in especially your own life. The next word in this list of sins is sorcery. This is yet another word that feels harmless if you don't understand it correctly. Most of you probably don't know anyone who self-identifies as a sorcerer. Rarely do you ever go down the street and see a storefront with a sign that says, Services of a Sorcerer. Rarely do you ever hear about a religion that says, We are a religion and community of sorcerers. But this word refers to all attempts to interact with and manipulate the metaphysical world other than through means that God himself has commanded and ordained, such as through prayer to him. When you understand that, you begin to realize that sorcery is everywhere. It includes a whole lot that you regularly see and hear about. This would include astrology, reading horoscopes, Ouija boards, witchcraft, voodoo, going to fortune tellers or tarot card readers, and the forms of magic that are based on more than just sleight of hand. Also, as many Chinese Christians have discovered, qi gong, feng shui, and many of the deeper aspects of Chinese martial arts are what the Bible condemns as sorcery. Perhaps some of you are now realizing why that weird relative who's so serious about certain Chinese disciplines is so exquisitely resistant to the gospel. You may have never realized he or she is a sorcerer. You've seen so far two sins of the flesh, sexual sins and religious sins. There's a third sin of the flesh, and that's what you might call relational sins. Relational sins. You see these in the next eight deeds of the flesh listed here in verses 20 and 21. Enmities, strife, jealousy, 
outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. Most of these sins are self-explanatory in their meaning, so I'll make just a couple observations. First, notice that there are both internal and external sins listed here. By internal, we mean sins of the heart, like enmities, jealousy, and envying. These are sins that occur internally inside of you and so are often hidden from the observation of others. In contrast, there are also external sins like strife, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. These sins are out in the open for everyone to see. The important point here is that sin does occur both internally and externally. You might be the type to think that so long as you don't scream and yell at someone, that you're okay. But the Bible says that even having enmity or hatred in your heart is already sin. Second, in a list like this, one question that often arises is, what's the difference between jealousy and envy? Both sins are listed here, and they sound rather similar. The answer is that envy is about wanting what someone else has, where jealousy is about fearing something you already have, fearing losing something that you have. So, for example, you might envy someone else for his girlfriend, while someone talking to your girlfriend makes you jealous, not envious. Another difference between jealousy and envy is that in very rare instances, the Bible actually says that jealousy can be legitimate and a good thing. Such as when God says that he is jealous for us and our loyalty. In contrast, in the Bible, envying is always described negatively. As some of you heard, in recent months in China, divorce rates have suddenly increased. The apparent reason is because of the higher number of conflicts that occurred during China's period of sheltering in place. Officials have explained that, quote, the divorce rate has soared compared to before the coronavirus outbreak. Couples are spending too much time together at home. They tend to get into heated arguments because of something petty and rush into divorce. End quote. Depending on how you're counting, the United States has seemed to be around five to six weeks behind China in terms of the disease spread and progression. Divorce is caused by sin, and sin is in both China and the United States. Therefore, I wouldn't be surprised if we begin seeing a similar increase in divorces here in the United States soon as well. By God's grace, as far as I know, none of you are planning on getting a divorce. But as these weeks of sheltering in place and working from home drag on and on and you spend more and more time with others at home, whether your spouse or your roommates, the relational sins we just talked about may have become more frequent than before. Sins like enmities, strife, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and so on. This is not because that other person has become a worse sinner than before. It's simply because you probably have more opportunities than ever to sin against one another. If and when that happens, don't forget the Christian disciplines of confessing sin, asking for forgiveness, and extending forgiveness. 
These same disciplines and virtues work just as well while you work from home as when you didn't. You've seen that three sins of the flesh are sexual sin, religious sin, and relational sin. There's a fourth and last sin of the flesh, and that's what we might call debaucherous sin. Debaucherous sin. Paul ends this list with the sins drunkenness and carousing. Drunkenness isn't where a person drinking acknowledges that he or she is drunk. If that were the definition of drunkenness, then drunkenness has rarely ever happened in the history of mankind. Instead, drunkenness is simply where your behavior and judgment have been compromised by alcohol. That happens all the time. Carousing here is the kind of behavior and events that often accompany the use of alcohol, such as what we typically think of as the nightlife that occurs in dance clubs and similar establishments. This is why Romans 13 contrasts specifically carousing and daytime behavior when it says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. Today, you've seen 15 deeds of the flesh that we've categorized into four sins of the flesh. Sexual sin, religious sin, relational sin, and debaucherous sin. These sins are so serious that Paul says in verse 21, they're worth warning the Galatians twice about. Similarly, today, you've been warned about these sins as well. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. One last warning is in order. These 15 deeds of the flesh and four categories of sin aren't exhaustive. In verse 21, Paul makes sure to say, and things like these, making the point that there are many other serious sins as well. Earlier, I told you about Lynn and the marital affair she describes biblically called adultery and sexual immorality. How and why did her adultery occur? The answer is because she chose to pursue and indulge the deeds of the flesh rather than walk by the Spirit. Today and every day for the rest of your life, you're confronted with a choice. You can walk by the Spirit or you can carry out the desires of the flesh. Which do you choose? Which do you choose today? And which will you choose tomorrow? Make the right choice and let's together help one another walk by the Spirit. Pray with me, please. Our gracious Father in heaven, We thank you that you are the God so worthy of our worship, so entirely true, so completely present, good. You are the definition of truth. It's hard to believe at times that you've given us the privilege of belonging to you, of being able to approach you in prayer, of being able to come in the credit of Christ and his righteousness. How is it possible, we sometimes wonder, Father, that you and your perfection could have a relationship with us in our sin? Christ, of course, is that bridge. Christ is that miracle. Christ is our credit. 
and our record of righteousness before you. We thank you for your word sufficiency and how it addresses the sins of the flesh, these deeds that are so unfortunately well known to us. We want to, of course, put off these deeds of the flesh. We want to put on the fruit of the Spirit. We ask that you would equip us in this way. We certainly want to surrender our heart to you, Father. We want to surrender everything that we are to your Son, Christ. We freely give to him all that we are. We dedicate ourselves to him. We want to love. We want to trust him. We want to live each and every day in his presence. Empower us to do exactly this, Father, to exalt you, to glorify you, and to surrender everything we are to you. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.